So we're uh, continuing our series this morning called Life Together, and we're looking at uh, what it means to be a local church. And we've been in this series for probably about eight weeks now, and we kind of started at the 30,000 foot level just talking about what the church is, and now we're kind of moving down into the very nitty gritty uh, details of what it means to be a church together. And part of the reason for that is that we... Uh, recently merged with Lentz Baptist Church. We are now one congregation. And so we, yes, John is still really stoked about it. (laughs) I am too. I am too. So, um, yes, that's where we're at today. So I ordered some new headphones uh, earlier this week. And when I ordered them, they were scheduled to arrive on Monday, tomorrow, um, which I was very content with. But somewhere along the way, the delivery date was moved up to Saturday, yesterday. But Saturday came, and Saturday has gone, and there are no headphones. I looked back online and saw that the delivery date was moved back to Monday. And then the internal rage ensued. Why would they taunt me like that? Build me up just to break me down. We live, (laughs) where is he going with this? We live in a fascinating age when it comes to the speed that goods can be delivered to us. Books are often available by by the same day. Our groceries can be delivered to us by the time my kids are teenagers. Aerial drones will likely be delivering all of our Amazon packages. But here's the turn. In the first century, it was not that way. Traveling ancient roads um, was required to bring a letter from one place to another. Um, dangerous, uh, um, dangerous roads, dangerous travel. Finding couriers could be very challenging. And there's a letter that we're going to be looking at this morning. That is the letter to Philemon. And many scholars believe that Paul was in prison in Rome when he wrote his letter to the Colossian church and he wrote his letter to Philemon. And Rome to Colossae is about 1,200 miles. That's roughly the distance of Portland to San Diego. And so that's the kind of distance that would need to be traveled on foot. It, it, was, it was quite a journey to bring a letter from one place to another. And there are many unspoken heroes that have helped us to preserve the letters that became the New Testament. And without their faithfulness, these letters from the apostles would not have made it to their destinations, and they would not have been preserved for us as Holy Scripture. But in God's careful providence and care, they were faithful, these men, and these letters were preserved. And oftentimes the messengers are even listed at the end of New Testament letters, the men that would bring these letters to the churches. But there's one messenger in particular that stands out. And this messenger carried a letter to a man and to a church. And the letter was about him. And this man that carried this letter that was about him to a man and to a church was a thief and he was a runaway slave. He was a thief and he was a runaway slave. And he carried the letter to Philemon. He carried the letter to Philemon. And the story goes something like this. Philemon was a very wealthy man, and he lived in the town of Colossae. And somewhere in the course of his life, Philemon met the apostle Paul. It's possible that he met 
Paul down in Ephesus. Ephesus was only about 120 miles away from Colossae. But we know that Paul didn't meet him in Colossae because we know that Paul never went to Colossae. Either way, somehow Philemon crosses paths with Paul. And Paul tells Philemon the good news of Jesus. And Philemon gets saved. He becomes a Christian. And Philemon goes back to Colossae and he starts a church. And Philemon, verse 2, says that the church is actually meeting in his house. So this man becomes a leader of sorts in the church. And we know that Philemon is wealthy because we know that Philemon had slaves. That's how we know that Philemon is wealthy. We also can probably infer that he had a home that was big enough for the church to be actually meeting there. Now, when we say slavery... We don't mean slavery as we consider it now. We don't mean antebellum slavery. Slavery in the New Testament in the ancient world uh, was of a different kind. And we can't spend a lot of time talking about that, but we can talk about that another time if you'd like. But it was, it was the way that the socioeconomic system even functioned. You know, there's records of, of doctors, physicians that were even slaves in the ancient world. And one of Philemon's slaves, his name, this messenger, was Onesimus. And one day, as Onesimus was living in Philemon's household, he decides that he was going to rip him off and he was going to run away. And so he does. He robs him and he flees all the way to Rome, 1,200 miles away. And slavery, or running away as a slave, actually was a capital offense in the Roman world. It was worthy of crucifixion if you were caught. So we don't know for sure why he goes to Rome. Maybe he sought the big city life where he could escape, where he could make a name for himself. We don't ultimately know why, though. The text never tells us. But we do know that God had a reason. Because somewhere along the way, as Onesimus is in Rome, he meets Paul. He meets the apostle. And Paul is under house arrest in Rome, waiting to stand trial. Maybe he knew of Paul from Philemon. Maybe he had even met him. Maybe he had heard his name from Philemon. Or maybe not at all. Maybe just in God's perfect providence, he brought Onesimus to Paul. Maybe the guilt had set in from what he had done. We don't know. But we know That Onesimus meets Paul. Paul tells him the good news of Jesus Christ. And Onesimus gets saved too. (laughs) He becomes a Christian. This runaway thief. This runaway slave. Hears the message of the gospel from the apostle himself. And gets converted. He becomes a Christian. At least one point is applicable to us here. And that is the gospel is for everyone. It is for landowner and it is for slave. It is for the politician and it is for the street sweeper. It is for the rich, it is for the poor, it is for the man, it is for the woman, it is for the old man, it is for the young child. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is for everyone. Because the message of the gospel does a work that is deep down in our hearts. It deals with the thoughts and the secrets and things that we haven't even shared, maybe oftentimes with our closest friends. 
The gospel speaks to the reality that deep down we are pretty much all the same. When social constructs and outward appearances go away, the reality of the situation is that all of us are pretty much the same. We're broken individuals. We're broken within ourselves. We're not the way that we ought to be. We're estranged and alienated from God. We're estranged and alienated even from one another. And the gospel message speaks to that in a radical way. It says that there is a way to be reconciled back to God. That all who would repent of their sins and put their confidence in Jesus Christ would be saved. And that is a message that is for every single human being. The gospel deals with us at the most fundamental level. So that's what happens to Onesimus. I would imagine that part of his conversion meant coming to terms with what he had done. Maybe not immediately. Maybe he doesn't, that same day, tell Paul, hey, by the way, I'm Philemon's runaway slave. But at some point, he has to deal with and comes to terms with what he has done and where he comes from. You know, I became a Christian when I was uh, 18 years old. And I became a Christian um, when I was actually in a jail cell. And I had gone to jail from, for stealing from the place that I'd, I'd worked at. And I was in jail for four months. And um, while I was in there, a, a group of, of brothers from a local church came in on a Saturday morning. And they told me the good news of Jesus. They told me that there was a way to be right with God and to be reconciled to him. And I remember it was like a light bulb flashing off in my mind and in my heart. I'd heard the gospel message several times. My, 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 I grew up going to church with my grandparents. But that moment, at that time, God sovereignly saw fit to save me. To break into my life and to save me. So when I got out of jail, that meant a lot of, a lot of uh, reconciling and restoring that had to happen. A lot of relationships. And I remember one thing in particular is once Vanessa and I moved up here, I was about 21 years old, and I was reminded of another time I stole from another group of people that I was never, I was never caught for. And I had stolen money from a group of people. I'm not going to say what it is right now because this is recorded and going on the internet. You can ask me later if you'd like. But I remember I went to the elders of the church, and I met with Chris, and I met with Dan, I met with Merv, and I met with Greg, and I asked them what I should do. And they said, you should pay the debt back. And I paid the debt back. And I imagine, as Paul is discipling this man Onesimus, he says, you need to make things right. Part of what it means now to be a disciple is to restore and reconcile these estranged relationships. We know also that Paul's under house arrest, as I mentioned a moment ago, and, and house arrest in the Roman world meant that you were responsible as the prisoner uh, to, to, to provide for yourself while you, were, while you were under arrest. You provided for your own needs. You had your own clothing provided, your own food even. And so it says here that Onesimus had become very useful, as I'll show us in a second when I read the text to us, that Onesimus had become very useful to Paul. His name, by the way, Onesimus, means useful. 
And Paul is saying, he's become very useful to me, which likely meant that he was, he was at Paul's service. He was helping care for him. He was likely bringing him food or clothing or whatever needs he may have had. But right now, for Onesimus, the right thing to do was to go back to Philemon and be reconciled. I'm sure he was terrified. So he has the Apostle Paul, the greatest mind in the ancient world, write him a letter to bring to Philemon. Onesimus is the messenger of the letter that he brings to Philemon. We're going to read it here in a moment. But by way of introduction yet again. N.T. Wright, he's a scholar, and he says at several places, but he said, if we only had one surviving document in the New Testament, and that sole surviving document was the letter to Philemon, we would know something radical about the nature of Christianity and about the nature of the gospel. That if all we had, we didn't have the Gospels, we didn't have Paul's other letters, we didn't have Peter's letters, we didn't have John's letters, all we had was this one letter to Philemon, we would know a lot. And we would know something very substantial about the nature of the Gospel, and we would know something very substantial about the nature of relationships within the Christian church. So let's read the text. Philemon. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church that is in your house. Grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Go down to verse 8 with me. He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake... I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Two observations here. First, he says, I could command you. He says, I could, I have the authority of an apostle here. I could just tell you what to do. But I'm not going to do that. He said, I'm going to appeal to you. You know, as I was reading more from N.T. Wright, he said one of the apostles' motives here in all his teaching is to teach his disciples to think Christianly, to help them to learn to think Christianly. Because you could suggest the old adage that if you, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for the day, but if you teach a man to fish, you, you feed him for a lifetime. That's sort of what the apostle is after here. He's not just trying to fix one problem in one circumstance, in one situation. He's trying to teach Philemon to think like a Christian. He's trying to teach Philemon to apply the reality and truth of the gospel to all of his life. And that's the task of being a disciple even today, my friends. You know, one of the ways that that wisdom has been defined is the way I define wisdom to my children is simply wisdom is knowing what to do. Wisdom is knowing what to do. Or a broader definition that comes from Walter Brueggemann says that wisdom is competency in the complex realities of life. And my friends, what the apostle is after here is he's after gospel wisdom. He's after teaching people to think about competency, about how to act in the complex realities of life. 
Because the truth is that you and I are likely never going to have a slave come back to us with a letter desiring to be reconciled. So that doesn't therefore mean that this letter to Philemon is absolutely inapplicable to us. Rather, what the apostle is after here is to teach us to think Christianly. As you're thinking about that thought, consider this. That the letter that was written to the Colossians, the letter that was written to the Colossian church, the letter to the church in Colossae, was almost certainly written at the exact same time as the letter that was written to Philemon. And the messenger of the letter to the church in Colossae was Onesimus. So he's likely holding both letters with him as he's traveling. He's like, okay, so this one is for the whole church to be read, and this one, Philemon, is is for you to read. Here, take this, take this. (laughs) Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. I won't read the whole thing since Dan already read it for us, but the reason that we read that text is that's the broad category. That's the command, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. See, this, that's, that's the command. That's the broad command to us. And turning over to the, to the letter to Philemon is a very practical, on-the-ground application of how this command in Colossians 3, 12 to 17 looks. And Onesimus is carrying both of them. And the church in Colossae has an opportunity, an opportunity to see what this kind of reconciliation that Paul is describing for us in Colossians actually looks like on the ground in a tangible way. I think we can pretty confidently say that Philemon did the right thing because the letter has been preserved. If he wouldn't have, they probably just would have crumpled it up and tossed it somewhere. But the letter became circulated as an example of what it is to be reconciled and to forgive and to think and to live Christianly. But second observation, just from these first two verses, is that he says, for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Spurgeon said in lecture to his students, he's, he's, he's training young pastors, and one thing he says, he says, bees are attracted faster with honey than they are with vinegar. He says, go to your people and lead them. Don't drive them. Don't exert your authority over them. Appeal to them as a father would to a son. Friends, I think there's application there to us. As, as, I, as I speak to my fellow, my fellow pastors, my fellow brothers, that we ought use our authority of, of influence before we use our authority of office. That we ought appeal for love's sake, not just because I'm one of the pastors here, but because we are fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Fathers, do you entreat your children and appeal to them Or do you simply say, because dad said so? There's times to say that, certainly. But the heart here that the apostle is getting at is one of appealing for love's sake. Employers, managers, bosses, is that how you lead your employees? Is it appealing for love's sake to them? 
Well, let's continue reading this letter. We're going to read the rest of it now, verses 10 through about 20. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you. (laughs) Yeah. But now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. How endearing. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he has parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. He's speaking to God's sovereign purposes. Maybe he ran away so that he could come hear the gospel and be yours forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. To say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. <laughs> okay. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. A quick prayer. Father, help us now as we've been looking at this text. We pray that you would continue to illuminate this for us. And by your power and by your spirit, you would conform us into the image of your dear son, our Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 17 and 18. Well, first I should say, I think this, three letter, this letter teaches us at least three things. And that's what I'm going to unpack the rest of the sermon under. One, it teaches us that we're forgiven. Two, it teaches us that we're welcomed in. And three, it teaches us that we should be reconciled. Forgiven, welcomed in, reconciled. Forgiven, welcomed in, reconciled. This first part, verse 18, he says, If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Essentially, Paul is saying that his life is an illustration of the good news of Jesus. Paul is saying that he was going to pay a debt that Onesimus could not pay. And this is precisely what the Lord Jesus does for his people that put their confidence and trust and hope in him. He pays a debt that we could not pay. The reality and the application of the gospel is so palpable in verse 18. If he owes you anything, put it on my account. There's a story about... Uh, Nicholas I, who was a czar of Russia. And the story goes that uh, Nicholas used to um, sort of dress up in, 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 in uh, like lieutenant or captain clothing, and he would walk around his different installations to inspect them. And uh, one story goes that he was inspecting this outpost uh, at this one time, and, and at this outpost there was a, a son there that was um, a, a friend of his. A son of a friend of his was, was there. And this son was in charge of managing the finances at this particular outpost, this particular installation. And this young man had mismanaged the funds. And he'd done so in a, in a, in a, in a gross sort of fashion. He'd mismanaged the funds. 
And word came that there was going to be an inspection of the installation, not Nicholas, because Nicholas is covert, but that there would be an inspection of the installation the following day, and this young man was absolutely terrified. He was absolutely terrified. And so the story goes that it seems that one, that, that night he had determined to take his own life. And he sat there, and he had drunken himself into a stupor, and, he'd, and right before he passed out, he'd written on a piece of paper in front of it, who can pay so great a debt? And that night, the story goes, Nicholas actually came into the, boy, the young man's room while he was passed out, looked at the ledger, realized what had happened, saw the note, who can pay a debt so great? And the story goes that Nicholas wrote one word. He wrote... Nicholas. And as the young man woke and he saw what had happened, he realized that that the czar himself had been there and he woke up in the morning to find that the debt had been paid in full. Who can pay so great a debt? When we speak of forgiveness, Jesus uses the image of debts to describe the nature of sins. In places like Matthew 6.20 and in places like the parable that's at the second half of Matthew 18. When someone seriously wrongs you, there is this unavoidable sense that the wrongdoer owes you. That the wrong has incurred an obligation, a liability, a debt. And anyone who has been wronged, that you, you, you feel this compulsion to make the other person pay down the debt. And we do that by all sorts of ways. We do that by hurting people. We do that by making them feel bad in some way. And sometimes we just do that by watching and waiting and hoping that something bad happens to them. And only after we see them suffer in some commiserate way do we sense that the debt has been paid and the sense of obligation is gone. The sense of debt, liability, and obligation is an impossible thing to escape. Anyone who denies it exists simply has not been wronged or sinned against in any serious way. So what then is forgiveness? Forgiveness means giving up the right to seek repayment from the one who harmed you. But when we talk about forgiveness, we must recognize that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. Forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. To forgive is to cancel a debt by paying it or absorbing it yourself. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness here, in the case of, of, of Philemon to Onesimus, or, or as Paul is, is, is exhorting him to do, is an illustration of the gospel. The Christian community, it's been said, is a hermeneutic of the gospel. Hermeneutic simply means uh, to understand something. So one of the ways, and, and Leslie Newbegin, who was a missiologist in the, in the middle part of the last century, he was a missionary and he studied what it is to do missions, he said that the church, I think Francis Schaeffer said this too, the church is the final hermeneutic of the gospel. That the way that the world will understand ultimately what the good news of Jesus is, is they will see how we act and relate to one another. 
They will understand the nature of forgiveness. They will understand that the Father has sent the Son so that we might be forgiven in watching our relationships with one another. It's an illustration of the gospel. It's a hermeneutic of the gospel. But that was point one, forgiven. We're not just forgiven. We're welcomed in. Verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. I can imagine how that initially potentially could have gone off, right? Um, Philemon could have the grace in him to say, okay, fine. Onesimus, Paul says he'll pay your debt, fine. Go ahead and go off, you know, over to the quarters uh, and, and, uh, as a slave and, and you know, we'll, we'll deal with this. But that's not what verse 17 says. He says, receive him as you would receive me. You know, one of the main descriptors of what it is to be, uh, to describe what it is to be a Christian in the New Testament is this term, in Christ. That we are in Christ. And one of my favorite places is Ephesians 1.6 that says that God has blessed us in the beloved. God has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved is his dear son. That the father is blessing us and welcoming us in and treating us upon the merits of his own son, Jesus Christ. So not just forgiven, not just, okay, the debt is paid, let's move on, but forgiven and then welcomed in. Forgiven and then treated on the merits of Christ. Forgiven and then treated as if he was receiving Paul himself. Not just forgiven, but welcomed in. You know, we've all experienced this. When, when, we've, when, we've, when we've gotten married, well, a lot of us have. <laughs> if you married into a, a good family, you've experienced this. But being welcomed into a new family. I remember that feeling myself when I married Vanessa and then being welcomed into the Griffin family. It was like I became a son that day. In fact, they said that to me several times. What was, what was theirs was now mine. The way they treated their daughter was the way they treated me. The way that they were with their possessions and their time and, and, and everything towards Vanessa was now afforded to me. I was welcomed in. I was treated on the merits of their beloved. Blessed in the beloved. That's the nature of the gospel. This whole letter, this whole... This whole text is a very practical on the grounds way of how to apply the truth of the gospel into our own lives. Even the way that we receive one another. And the way that we welcome one another into our lives. The way that we would receive Christ. The way that we would receive the apostle himself. The way that we would receive one that is very dear to us. Is the way in which Paul is telling Philemon to receive Onesimus. Do we live that way with one another? Two churches coming together as one new church. Gathering church, do you receive Lent's members in the same way that you do your deepest friends? Lent's members, do you receive gathering members into your lives and into, into your fellowship the way that you've received your closest friends? That's the nature of the gospel. That's how the world will know that the Father has sent the Son. The way that we welcome one another into our lives. And third, reconciled. 
not just forgiven, not just welcomed in, but also reconciled. To reconcile simply means to restore harmony. To restore harmony. And you, you think, think in, in musical terms, I'm not a very musical person, but I'm told there's such a thing called a harmony. <laughs> but it's different parts, different notes that go together in such a way that they make something seem more beautiful. So it's not, it's not flattening all of our, uh, our, our differences. It's not, it's not, it's not um, all of us just becoming the same. Rather, it's different parts working together and actually becoming harmonious. Working together to be something that was more beautiful than the separate parts. To be reconciled means to restore that kind of harmony. And that kind of restoration of harmony has happened and been, and needing to happen rather, since the Garden of Eden. When we were alienated from God, we were alienated from each other. Adam and Eve were alienated from each other when they were alienated from God. The woman made me do it. And ever since then, God's restoring act, God's work of redemption is to restore harmony, is to reconcile. To reconcile is to restore harmony. So let me give us give you some very practical ways to do that as we're considering reconciliation. One of the things that we're marching towards in the next couple weeks is presenting the congregation with a new church covenant. And the new church covenant on this particular uh, issue says this, that we will live in harmony with one another seeking biblical reconciliation. That we will live in harmony with one another And we will seek biblical reconciliation. So let me just give us some practical ways to seek biblical reconciliation. First, always remember your own sinfulness. Always remember your own sinfulness. Proverbs 16.2 says, All a man's ways seem innocent to him, but his motives are weighed by the Lord. Your motives are never as pure as you think they are. To know your own sinfulness, it helps keep you from being too sure and too confident of your own position. And from speaking too strongly against people on the other side of conflict. Remember your own sinfulness. You need to realize that you're not seeing things as clear as you think you are. Second, which is a similar point, remember that there's always another side. There's always another side. Proverbs again. The first to present his case seems right until another comes forward and questions him. You just never have all the facts. You're never in a position, you'll never be in a position to know the whole picture. We should always assume that we have far too little information to simply draw complete conclusions. Third practical way to seek and to restore harmony and to seek reconciliation is to maintain a loving and humble tone. Tone is extremely important, which is why reconciling over email is not a very good idea. I don't know how many times I've sent something to somebody or they've sent something to me and I immediately am like, oh, I cannot believe he said that. And I showed my wife, I'm like, look at this guy. And she's like, that is not what that means. There was one time, this is on the fly, I hope I don't get myself in trouble here. There was one time that I emailed Matt Zrust, and he doesn't even know this story, I don't think. And I was, we were talking about church credit cards, and he said something about trust, like, well, if we don't trust you that much, then, 
then you shouldn't have a church credit card. And I was like, he says he didn't trust me. <laughs> Evan is like, no, no, no. He's saying he does trust you. I was like, oh. <laughs> Tone of voice is extremely important. That doesn't mean to resort to flattery or, or, or syrupiness or... Or, or something like that, but it also, or doesn't, but it also doesn't mean to be abusive and angry tones. But a, but a controlled, calm tone is important. It sounds like a, it is a very on the ground, practical application. Tone of voice simply matters. And third, or excuse me, fourth. This is my last practical application: is to attack the problem, not the person. Rather than saying you are so thoughtless, say something like. I don't have anything in my notes here. You are so thoughtless. <laughs> say instead that, oh, I don't know what you'd say. You'd say that act um, appeared to me to be this way. Instead of attacking the person, attack the problem. Not you are thoughtless, but that, 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 that action seemed to suggest to me this. Okay. In conclusion, my friends, <clears throat> unreconciled relationships within the church are inevitable Because the church is such a wonderful, supernaturally created community. And that's from Don Carson on John 13. Listen to what he says. He says, there are so many exhortations in the New Testament for Christians to love other Christians because the church is not made up of natural friends. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else like that that bind together most other people groups. Christians come together not because they form a natural uh, friendship, but because they've all been saved by Jesus Christ and they owe to him their common allegiance. In this light, we are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That is the only reason why Jesus tells us in John 13, 34, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. Christian love will stand out and bear witness to Jesus because it is a display for Jesus' sake, a mutual love among social incompatibles. A mutual love among social incompatibles. My friends, the apostle closes this letter like this. He says, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so does Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. You see who he mentions there? He mentions Mark and he mentions Luke. If you know anything about the apostle's life, you know that in Acts 15, he and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement about this young man named Mark. The apostle didn't think that this young man, Mark, was fit for ministry. Barnabas, who's, who's uh, much more compassionate, wanted to bring him along and disciple him and to, and, to, and to grow him up in the faith. And it says that a sharp disagreement arose among Paul and Barnabas. And Paul went his own way and Barnabas went his. But we know later, later in life, that Mark begins to show up again in Paul's letters. He shows up in the letters to Timothy And he shows up here. There's another name that's mentioned there too, which is Luke. Luke and Paul and Mark have been a band of brothers for a really long time. 
most of the New Testament was written by those three guys. And they've been through thick and thin together. And the apostle never commands us to do something that he himself has not already done first. He was reconciled to Mark. He lived with Luke all those years. And my friends, our Lord Jesus does not ask us to do something that he himself has not done either. To reconcile us to God required him to cry the cry of dereliction. The cry of dereliction is the cry on the cross where Jesus says to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The one perfect relationship that was in perfect harmony for all of eternity was broken so that you and I could be brought in. There was perfect harmony for all eternity within the Godhead. And the cry here from our Lord Jesus is different from the cry that you and I will ever cry. The cry of dereliction is that Jesus Christ was forsaken. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was somehow cut off from some kind of relationship with his father that caused him to cry and scream those words of agony. And he did it for your sake. He did it so that you might be brought in. And the way that you now live out your life is in complete confidence and trust in him and him alone. And as we have difficulty welcoming one another in and reconciling with one another, we ought only and continually gaze upon our Lord Jesus who reconciled us to him through his work alone. And my friends, as we keep gazing on him, it'll be like, a, a, it'll be like a, a coin that sort of drops down into a vending machine one dime at a time. The lights will go on a little bit more. Our hearts will be melted yet a little bit more as we gaze upon him and we will begin to know and to have the strength and the courage to live these kinds of relationships with one another. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for our Lord Jesus. God, we ask that we would gaze on him. We would gaze on him and his work alone. That he has reconciled us back to the Father and to himself in the unity of the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to be that kind of church and to be those kinds of people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.